When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. And welcome to the bookcase. I'm Kate Gibson, don't you know? <laughs> I do know. As a matter of fact, since you're my daughter, I'm Charlie Gibson, and this is the bookcase. Kate doing her Fargo accent. I don't know. I'm from everywhere. That was like a combination of like Finn, Fargo, Scotland. <laughs> there was some Ireland in there. I don't know. I covered it all. My apologies to my adopted homeland of Minnesota. Let's do a whole podcast that way. You, you, do, you, do, yeah. it, you do it in Midwest voice. This is somewhat appropriate because our author today is William Kent Kruger, a very prolific author who is very much a Midwest author, I think, Kate. Yes, I live in Minnesota, for those of you that don't know, and he is a Minnesota writer. And I worked in a Minnesota bookstore for a long time. And every time there was a new William Kent Kruger book, people from Minnesota would line up. And they were very passionate about him. I hadn't really realized he had such an incredible national appeal until I worked at that bookstore. His books are just wonderful. Every time a new book of his came out, that's that's a common occurrence. Yes, it He's is. He's an extraordinarily <laughs> prolific author. He has written a series about a sheriff, Cork O'Connor. I think this is his 19th book, this most recent one. And he's written a bunch of standalones. That's a, a term that I had never heard of before we started this podcast, but books that aren't in the series and are, again, also set in Minnesota. He says every time he writes, it's a Valentine to his adopted home. Yeah. And he does depict it, I think, with universal appeal, not to just people in the Midwest, but all over. He does. He does some historical fiction. And when people write about universal appeal in the Midwest and it's historical fiction and you're talking about the sheriff, I always approach it. You know, I, I was a kid of the 80s and 90s. So when I would go out with a boy and they would quote Wall Street to me and they would say, greed is good, greed works. And I would always sort of roll my eyes and I would go, it was a satire. It was a satire. Oliver Stone didn't want you to take that seriously. I feel sort of similarly about writers that write about the Midwest historical fiction. If you're not going to show me some of the darkness that goes with the nostalgia, that goes with the white picket fence and the American flag on the barn, if you're not going to write about the darkness that comes with that, then I'm not I'm not interested because to me, that's one level writing. And William Ken Kruger, especially in his new book, The River We Remember, he brings many levels to a page turning mystery that I thought was really entertaining and very but also very deep and, and beautiful. And people, if they read The River We Remember, will say, how could he have written 19 books in this series when Cork O'Connor is a kid? Well, he admits, as you'll hear, that it, this is a prequel. This is He got sort of tired about writing Cork as a grown guy. So now he thought he'd go back and write about him as a kid with a father who was also a sheriff. This is really wonderful. And I think one of the really wonderful parts of it is that he is very touched by the local culture and by the Native American culture in Minnesota. The Ojibwe culture is very much a part of his novels, as he will discuss. But I think it's a different approach to the Midwest. Jay Ryan Straddle, who's such a good friend of yours, who we have talked to a couple of times on this podcast, also from Minnesota, but now living in Los Angeles, gives me a different take on the Midwest than William Kent Kruger. So those are both authors from a different viewpoint, I think. William Kent Kruger writes brilliantly about the Midwest, but 
when we speak specifically about Minnesota, there's many levels to Minnesota Nice. Minnesota Nice only tells one particular perspective on the story. And William Ken Kruger and J. Ryan Straddle both do, I think, a brilliant job of taking a shovel into the depth of Minnesota Nice. And you're right. I think that William Ken Kruger does brilliant writing about the Anishinaabe, but also he does some brilliant writing. He comes across, I think, almost as a naturalist. His descriptive powers are amazing. Mm. And he brings all of that to a page turning mystery. I mean, that's I love mysteries that can take it to the next level with readers. And William Kent Kruger really does that. A couple of things that we didn't include when we edited this interview, because you can't go on forever. And we sort of did with him. A couple <laughs> of things. Number one, he says, if you write a mystery said in modern times, you have to try to keep up with all the technology advances in forensic science, and he can't do it. Uh, so I thought that was a really interesting explanation of why he sets these novels in the past. The second thing, and this really intrigued me, we had to talk to him on a specific day because he was about to leave oh, yeah. on, a, on an expedition to the Boundary Waters in northern Minnesota, on the boundary with Canada. And he was going with a bunch of guys and they were going to, I sort of pictured this as sitting around a campfire talking about books and living, I don't know if living in tents or sleeping bags somewhere, whatever, but it sounded so romantic to me. He had this group read a series of books, of course, a couple of his, and they were going to discuss books, just a bunch of guys on a camping trip. I thought that really sounded fun. Next time he signs people up, I'm not sure I'll sign up, but but I thought I thought I was sort of romanticized it. It's a thing here in the Midwest that I was not aware of being a, a New Yorker who moved to the Midwest. The Boundary Waters up north, largely undisturbed. You know, I know that my husband took my daughter camping and I remember they came to me and they started talking and they said the word portage. And I said, I, I don't know what that means. And it turns out <laughs> it's a verb. It means literally portage means literally just transporting your canoe from one place to another. If I had not moved to the Minnesota, I would not know that word exists. Thank you, Minnesota. You thought it was a wine? I, I did. Or, 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 or a corking tradition, or I don't know, um, you know, or maybe a, a seafaring term, you know, we're going portaging later. I don't, I don't know. But, but it's a thing. And that wilderness, that love of the wilderness that I don't necessarily have is built into William K. Kruger's writing. Portage, Kate, is not, is not confined to the Midwest. It is everywhere. If you have to carry your craft across the land to get to another body of water. That's a portage. Okay. Anyway, William Kent Kruger. If you run into him in a grocery store, you call him Kent. That's what he goes by. Or you, or you can call him Mr. Kruger. We called him Kent. And we had a delightful conversation with him about his latest book, The River We Remember. William Kent Kruger, it is a pleasure to have you in the bookcase. I've seen you quoted. I think of you as a Midwestern writer maybe even more slightly Western than mid, but you are very much set in Minnesota. And I'm wondering why and what that means to you. Yeah, I'm not native to Minnesota, Charlie. I didn't move here until I was about 30 years old. So my wife could go to the University of Minnesota Law School. And before that, I was a, a nomad. I grew up in a family of nomads. I lived all over the place. And honestly, I never had anywhere that I thought of or called home. But I swear to you, the minute I set foot in Minnesota, I knew I'd found home. I fell deeply in love with this place and with its people. Why? Well, I spent several years in my adolescence in the Midwest, small towns and farms in the Midwest. And I'm a firm believer that once the Midwest sets a hook in your heart, it always pulls you back. So when I came back, I felt home. And I have to be honest with you, you know, I tried to write 
stories set in many, I, I lived in many beautiful places and I've tried to write stories about those places, but for whatever reason, they, they didn't speak to my heart in the way that Minnesota has. I specifically read, you quoted an NPR about place as a character, place is one of the most important and versatile characters in any story. So I guess I'll ask you first, how do you describe Minnesota to others? If you go up north, it's the Great North Woods, which is sort of the iconic image of Minnesota, you know, Paul Bunyan territory. But if you go to the south, it's very Midwestern, rolling hills of fields of soybeans and corn. When I work on a Cork O'Connor novel, I'm highlighting the beauty of the north. When I work on one of my standalone novels, Ordinary Grace, This Tender Land, or the new one that's coming out, The River We Remember, I try to highlight that agrarian beauty that uh, was what first won my heart. I write profoundly out of a sense of place. And those readers whose work that I really enjoy also write profoundly out of a Mm -hmm. sense of place. And uh, those of us who do understand that it is one of the most important and versatile characters in a story. It adds so much. Uh, When I create a story, motivation comes out of place. Character is shaped by place. Atmosphere adds to sense of place. So you ought to use that setting in an enormous number of ways to enhance the quality of the story that you're creating. In the new book, The River We Remember, As I read it, I thought, you know, this is an interesting idea. Here's a guy who has been killed, and here's 20 characters who could have done it because they all had a reason to do it. But I also thought, well, this is interesting. It's set in the 1950s. Why is he setting it there? And then, of course, I realized you wrote it there because it's post-World War II, and you were able to write, I thought, very interestingly about the mindset of a soldier. Your principal character is a former soldier who thinks of himself, calls himself at one point a murderer because he served in the war. You have one description in it of why a soldier kills. Oh, yes. In the end, a soldier kills because all the circumstances of a moment drive him to it. It isn't for freedom or God or for the people back home. It's because he has no choice but to kill. And in that moment, he's not thinking of it as a good thing or a bad thing. He's not thinking about ethics. He's thinking about keeping himself alive and keeping his comrades alive. And in all that mess, the only thing he wants is for it to end and for him to be alive to see that end. Yeah, I, I think that's really very well done. I, I have a series of letters written by my uncle after whom I was named from World War I. And he writes the same thing, but not as eloquently, (laughs) about how in the end you're fighting for your brethren, for the guy next to you, for the people that you've trained with. And I think that says it very well. You also, in your books, have a profound interest and sympathy for Native Americans. Where did that come from? You know, it began, I have to be real frank with you, for mercenary reasons. When I set out to write my first Cork O'Connor novel, I knew I wanted to include the Ojibwe as an element of the work because anybody who takes a look at the North Country of Minnesota, any storyteller, you realize that you can't tell a true story set in the North without including the Ojibwe, the Anishinaabeg, as an element of your work because their influence up there is ubiquitous. It's everywhere and it's powerful. So I decided I was going to... Uh, uh, incorporate the Ojibwe culture as much as I could in my work. What did I know about them at that point? About what every white person knows about the Native people we live shoulder to shoulder with? Nothing. But I was a cultural anthropology major in college, and so the idea of learning about this culture, not my own, was exciting. And of course, I began in the way all good academics began. I began by reading, but in the course of my research, then 
I began to meet and form relationships with uh, folks in the Ojibwe community, relationships that have become important friendships to me over the years. So I rely significantly on their advice, their counsel, their suggestions whenever I'm doing my work. But I want to go back to the veterans. Now, having read a few of your works, veteran and PTSD is a running thematic through your work. What sort of caused you to delve into PTSD and what it does to the mind? You know, the seed for the river we remember came from my dad. When he was 18 years old and had just graduated from high school, my father enlisted in the service and marched off to fight in World War II in Europe. Uh, He was just a kid. Uh, He came back several years later, a man deeply wounded in body and spirit uh, by what he had experienced there. And he, you know, he was very similar to the fathers of my friends, men who had fought in World War II or the Korean War. And, you know, all these guys went away kids. Some of them didn't even shave yet. And they came back men wounded in spirit by the the horrors that they had seen and the horrors that they had been a part of. And I've wondered all of my life, how is it that men and women manage to heal as a result of all of these wounds? What is it that helps them get to that place of wholeness, if they ever do? I'm always sort of interested with a writer as to where does it start? Does it start with the place? Does it start with the story? Did it start with the character? I began working on this after my standalone Ordinary Grace, and I had created a small town in southern Minnesota. And I really loved dealing in that uh, setting. And so I thought, okay, I'm going to set it in another small town because I write mysteries. <laughs> People expect that there's going to be some sort of mystery involved in the story. I knew I was going to have to create a, a mystery at the heart of things. And so I had to begin thinking about that. So a lot of that just kind of came together all at the same time. Typically, when I uh, write a Cork O'Connor story, I think that through as completely as I can before I begin to put my fingers to the keyboard so that I know where the story begins, I know how it ends, I know who did what to whom and why. But with my standalones and with the river we went through it, I didn't approach it that way. I wanted a more dynamic process, something that would allow the reader to feel like I was telling them a story that didn't come from my head, but came from my heart. And so writing these books and writing uh, The River We Remember, I just let the story kind of uh, reveal itself to me as I created it. I read you say once that you have a 30-year friendship going with Cork O'Connor. So my question for you is, if you're going to write a series, do you have to like your protagonist? And have you ever been tempted to, let's use Reichenbach Falls as a verb, have you ever been tempted to Reichenbach Fall Cork (laughs) O'Connor? You know, Cork has been my bread and butter for more than a quarter of a century now. And I got to tell you, I really do like spending time with that guy. He's he's a mensch. He's uh, (laughs) a guy. Um, he's the guy that I would love to sit down at a, at a bar and just, uh, you know, drink some beer and have a conversation with. So I haven't grown tired of him. I haven't uh, thought about killing him off. Uh, if you've read my series, you know that I do periodically kill off important characters. Um, but uh, killing off Cork would be an end of the series. And, and I have, at this point, no intention of ending the series. It's still doing quite well. And, and I do get people clamoring for more. So as long as that's the case, I'm going to keep writing them. Excellent. But is Cork O'Connor, you've been writing him for for 30 years, is he a different person now than he was when you started? Oh, absolutely he is. Well, in in many different ways. I mean, he's the same guy at heart, but he's aged. The 19 books in the series, and I'm writing the 20th book right now, will span 17 years in the lives of the characters. 
So they have, uh, you know, Quark is, uh, when I began writing him, he was a man I, I thought of as maybe 40-ish. Now he's in his mid to late 50s. His children, who were young in the original books, now are old and grown. They have, Cork has a grandson. So they have all aged and changed. The way they see themselves, the way they see each other, the way they see the world has shifted across the course of the novels. Cork's idea about who he is and what his place in the world and his, his purpose in the world has gone through many different uh, iterations. So yeah, and that's one of the things that has kept it exciting for me, has kept me from growing tired of court. Every time I sit down to write a, a story in the series, he's not the same guy he was the last time. Things have happened that have changed him and changed those that he loves. We talked to a, a really interesting fantasy writer a few months ago, and she, since she has to create a world in which she's going to set her book and for the reader to get to know. She writes a long, long, long Wikipedia page about that world and what's in it and its marital rights and its uh, its beliefs and its whatever. Would you have sat down and, and written a, a Wikipedia page for Cork O'Connor? And, and would it be consistent? You know, I have friends who, in their work, keep huge dossiers on each of their characters so they know exactly how they've created the character, what the character looks like, all of the relationships of the character, all dossiers on the people. Are... Wouldn't that have been a good idea? <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, uh, I have lived with Cork and with uh, the, the O'Connor clan for so long. I know them all extremely well. Um, every once in a while, I get a detailed wrong and readers let me know it when I do. But if I had created a Wikipedia page in the beginning, I would have had to update it uh, all along the way. <laughs> <laughs> so, so are you saying that sometimes a, a reader will zing you that, that you've just written something that's inconsistent with that novel six books about? Oh, and I said exactly, Charlie. Particularly, you know, readers are binge readers often. And so they'll do one book, next book, next book, next book. And, you know, five books down the way, they'll go, now, wait a minute, in that book I just read, uh, you know, three weeks ago, and I get caught in it. I want to ask you one last question, because I did read that you were a cultural anthropologist. Zora Neale Hurston was also a cultural anthropologist. I'm interested is how do you think that affects the way that you write? And is that a grounding that you would recommend for other writers? Well, I certainly think that if you have a background in cultural anthropology, or really in the social sciences in general, it gives you a broader perspective in how you view mankind. There are so many different iterations of what it is to be human out there, and the one that you are most familiar with is not the one. And so I think it just opens your mind to um, and, and your embrace of what other possibilities are out there and uh, helps you respect that those things that maybe are different and you don't completely understand, but you know that for those people, this is the way it is. I think that's a very good question because it's obvious that that is your background when you read about your depiction of the American Indian. It is also obvious in your depiction of why man continues to go to war again and again and again. Mm -hmm. And it's in so many of your books. It's important uh, to where you come from. Absolutely. And I think it elevates your writing to the, your mysteries to the next level. So thank you. Thank you. Well, thank you, Kate. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for being with us. Yes, William thank Kent you so Kruger. much. The new book is The River We Remember. 
Hey, I'm Andy Mitchell, a New York Times bestselling author. And I'm Sabrina Kohlberg, a morning television producer. We're moms of toddlers and best friends of 20 years. And we both love to talk about being parents, yes, but also pop culture. So we're combining our two interests by talking to celebrities, writers, and fellow scholars of TV and movies. Cinema, really. About what we all can learn from the fictional moms we love to watch. From ABC Audio and Good Morning America, Pop Culture Moms is out now wherever you listen to podcasts. As in previous campaigns, it's the economy, stupid. We'll be looking at that this morning. First, though, it's the news, stupid. It is the economy, stupid. It's not the economy, stupid. It's national security, stupid. It's the hair, stupid. In 1992, one of the best-known pieces of presidential campaign wisdom was born. It's the economy, stupid. But was it actually the economy that won Bill Clinton that election? In a new series from the 538 Politics podcast, we're taking a look back at conventional wisdom from past elections with a critical lens. Where did that wisdom come from, and does it hold up today? Find the Campaign Throwback series in the 538 Politics feed wherever you get your podcasts. Rapid fire questions from William Kent Kruger. You once said if you were going to have the president read one book, it would be Grapes of Wrath. Is that still true? I think that's such a great book, too. Uh, You know, so many of the people in our upper echelons of politics have don't really have a sense of the people, what real people are experiencing, the difficulties that they're going through. If the president were to read the Grapes of Wrath, he would see that the same issues that we were dealing with back then, we are dealing with today homelessness, jobs that don't pay enough for a living wage, a huge division, economic and social division in our nation. So I think it would be eye-opening and uh, and hopefully enlightening. If I were not a writer, I would be... A forest ranger. Huh. That's the only thing I ever wanted to be other than a writer. I bet you would have been a good one. I bet you would have been a good one. If you... I, I also read you don't read before bed. So when do you read... I usually try to set aside an hour, at least an hour every day in the afternoon, uh, sometime after lunch. I'm a little fresher then. You know, I don't read in bed because I can read like two pages before I fall asleep. Um, so I try to read when my mind is fresher. <laughs> well, welcome to the world of a host of Good Morning America. You get in bed, you, get in bed, you read two pages, you're gone because you have to get up at three o'clock in the morning. Yeah. And, and then you have to go back and reread the same three pages next day because you haven't a clue what it is you read. What did you read to your kids when they were young? You know, I have to be honest with you. I didn't read to my children. Hmm. It was my wife who read to the children. When I put the children down, they wanted me to tell them a story. And I always created a story and I used them as the characters. Were they mysteries? <laughs> they were a house on the moor stories. So there was this house on the moor and the characters were in there and things happened outside the house on the moor or sometimes inside the house on the moor. And they always involved my children in a host of created mysterious characters. Ah, excellent. Okay. Do you still write at 5.30 in the morning? Uh, these days, I, give, I let myself sleep in until 6. <laughs> <laughs> I'm of an age, Kent, where I'm realizing that there are many books that I want to read but will never get to. Do you have any in that category? Yeah, I have one that I, I have known forever I should read, and I have tried a number of times and just haven't made it through, and that's Moby Dick. That is the next 
big book on my to-be-read pile for this reason. As soon as I finish the Cork O'Connor novel that I'm currently at work on, I want to start on another standalone. And I envision it to be a retelling of Moby Dick, but set on the land. Well, if you're going to retell it, you got to read it. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Uh, Do you have a bucket list and what's on it? Uh, Of books or of things? Just of things. I would love to hit the New York Times bestseller list at number one one of these days. I've been close, never quite hit number one. Uh, I would like to uh, spend some time in New Zealand, a good deal of time in New Zealand, a place I've never been, but I've heard uh, a a whole lot about. I would like to ride Regbri, which is the registered guard right across Iowa every July, 500 miles across Iowa in the middle of the blazing summer heat. If it doesn't kill me, <laughs> then there are probably other things I'd like to do after that. Why? <laughs> okay. Um, uh, Anne Patchett said that she was amazed at how many bad novels there are out there. So we wanted to ask you, what is the first thing that says to you, this is a lousy book? That, that first page. I can tell on the first page whether this writer is somebody who, who has the same love of language that I have, the same grasp of storytelling that I have and can really hold me through the whole novel. I really don't give a book very much time. If it hasn't really got me by the first 20 pages, I'm out of there. There's so many fine books out there. Why spend time with a bad one? I read and was amazed that you got kicked out of Stanford. Yeah. It it wasn't because of your English grades, I hope. (laughs) No, uh, activism. I got kicked out because I was a part of a takeover of the administration building in protest for an issue involving the Vietnam War. Advice you would give to a mystery writer who's just starting out. Well, I'm going to give the advice to any writer who's just starting out. Two pieces of advice. One, write every single day. Two, marry somebody with a good job. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I like that. Perfect. And uh, a question we stole from Stephen Colbert, but we find it illustrative. In five words, what would you like the rest of your life to be? Quiet, active, family, oriented and writing. Our conversation with William Kent Kruger, I really have enjoyed getting to know his writing. Not to say discover, because so many people discovered him before me. I feel like, I remember when we talked to Jenny Lawson and we had that quote about Jenny Lawson's writing and I feel sort of similarly about William Kent Kruger. It's like, come for the mystery, stay for the brilliant writing on complexities of the Midwest. The, the decimation of the Anishinaabe uh, and tribal lands, the insanely wonderful writing on PTSD and also more mystery. I just he really his mysteries have a lot of depth to them. And, and, and I think it takes his writing to the next level. And I think his history and training as a cultural anthropologist is really what is really what makes his writing sing. Yeah, as he told us, that's what really gave him a deep interest in the Ojibwe culture as a cultural anthropologist. And it's an interesting background, I think, for a novelist. Also, one other thing that we talked about that we we didn't include, but this has become for us a sort of masterclass in writing. One of the things we're always interested in is what do you do when you hit writer's block? And he said, you know, on a novel, there are so many natural stopping places for a manuscript. But when he finishes his first draft, he sets it aside for a while so that he can come back to that first round of revisions with a fresh eye. Oh, that's just sort of a standard operating procedure for him. And I think it's an interesting way to do it. It's also an interesting way for a, a novelist who's as prolific as he is, because uh, you've got, you got a couple of novels going uh, all at once, and you don't get so attached to that one that you need to revise 
that you get sort of a, a blind eye toward it. It reminds me of one of our favorite books, the Stephen King book on writing. One of his main pieces of advice is when you finish, when you feel like you've come to the end of a piece, put it away, put it at the top of a closet. Don't look at it for six months. Do something else and then come back because it's only by bringing that kind of a space when you look back at it, it's when you bring some distance to it, that you'll be able to really look at it with the critical eye that you'll need for editing. If I was a writer, I would take that advice. Yeah, right. <laughs> so our bookstore this week, Kate, you, you introduced the bookstore. Our bookstore this week is really intriguing. It's called Page 158. We talked to Suzanne Lucy, one of their owners. I'm totally fascinated by what is on page 158. Which 158? I wanted to almost tear through my own collection and look through all the page 158s to figure out which one she was talking about. <laughs> well, I'm not sure. <laughs> people will know at the end because she has sort of multiple stories about it. It's page 158 in the Renaissance Center in Wake Forest, North Carolina. A Suzanne Lucy. Suzanne Lucy, the owner of page 158 books in Wake Forest, North Carolina, joining us. And the obvious question, and I'll bet you get it every day. Every day. Page 158 of what? I have a few different stories. I'll go with Fahrenheit 451 has exactly 158 pages, one of my favorite books. But Gloria Steinem asked me that question too. And I said, oh, it's my IQ. And she put her head back and laughed out loud. I'm like, you don't even know me. But I got my joke. But we had six weeks before the former owner of a bookstore asked me if I wanted to take over to when we opened the store. And you know how you think you're going to have the name like perfectly worked out? No, I didn't. So we had a friend... Andy Ellis, who was a um, advertising executive, and he gave me a list of names to choose from. And page one fifty eight stood out. And now it's become a thing where we go to conventions and people sign on page one fifty eight. And I had one girl say, "I cried when I wrote this page." So it's become like, "Oh my god, this is when the book gets really good." So yeah, it worked out very well for us. <laughs> I thought it may have been a dog-eared page of a book hidden under a bed somewhere. I wasn't sure. Well, you can keep guessing because one of those stories is true. <laughs> <laughs> How did you, I mean, I'm always fascinated because it's hard to get into this business because you want to make a quadrillion dollars. So yes. how did you end up in this business? So we moved from Boston 16 years ago and I had started a book club up there. And I also used to have a little television show like a Wayne's World in your basement <laughs> right outside of Boston on like community television. And I loved interviewing authors. Like they're my rock stars. Like I just love them. So when we moved down here, the Renaissance Center, which is in the same plaza as us, they were asking for like things to do for their Renaissance Center. So I said, oh, I could interview authors. So I got to doing that. And then there was a bookstore downtown, like I had mentioned, and it was a former psychiatrist that had retired. And he, you know, I would try to get the books for the author coming in. And I said to him like, oh, as I like fondled the books on the way out, I'd love to own a bookstore. And he emailed me three days later and asked if I wanted to take over. So I know, like I took over, I had never worked in a bookstore. I was in the medical field before this and I was a brain surgeon. Kidding. <laughs> <laughs> when you got that email, was your first reaction, oh my God, or was your first reaction, oh my God? No, I sprang off the couch. My husband works from home and I just ran into his office. I'm like, we have to do this. He's like, what is wrong with you? And no, it's it's been the best thing I've ever done. I'm interested. So what, what really excited you this summer? What were you really excited to be, be putting in customers' hands this summer? Well, I finished Tom Lake. Oh my God. 
Have you read it? We just talked to Ann Patchett. We have her on. Yes. Oh, she's who I want to be when I grow up because I read all her books and I love her. And the last one that she did was that was nonfiction. It was like, I just want to be your friend. You're just so nice. And I've met her a few times. She's absolutely hilarious. But her new book, Tom Blake, is incredible. I love her. Elizabeth Acevedo's new book is Kelly read it too. And it's a family lore book. Oh my God, it's so good. Some things that struck me when I was reading about the bookstore, you have a wonderful variety of book clubs. Yes. And I don't know if you still have them, but my favorite was the cocktails and coloring. Do you still do that? You know, coloring books was huge for a few years and we used to do that and I loved it, but coloring books are just not what are, where it is now. So we're going to we're gonna start to do other things in the store, especially with the new space that we're adding on because we'll have tables and chairs and a space for author events and we'll have music on Friday nights. But I love that because it was such a community draw. We'd have 56 women there and most of them were teachers. Tell me about this new space because if you're doing a new space, then my guess is you're living, breathing, eating, sleeping, yes. building a new space. So yes. Get it off your chest. Tell us about the new space. Well, a couple years in the making. You know, when we moved in the space next door to us, which is twice the size of what we are now, we're 1,600 square feet and next door is 3,200. So we do have a great restaurant, The Lemon Tree, which is going to be doing lunch, grab and go, soup, salad, sandwiches, to-go dinners. We're going to have a bar. We've had beer and wine forever, but we're eventually going to get into alcohol too. We want it to be like a mecca for authors to come in and, and chat and writers and you know, have the big author events and have music nights, you know, a, a real art community. I know Wake Forest University absconded yes. many years ago and went off to Winston-Salem, but you're in the triangle with Raleigh and Durham. It's a great intellectual area of universities. Uh, mm-hmm. I would suspect you have a pretty educated and discerning clientele. We do. Yes. And like I said, more and more people are moving here because of Apple and Google are coming and Research Triangle Park is huge. So many drug companies in there and IT companies and people are moving in here. When I moved here 16 years ago, there was only about 23,000 people and now it's over, it's close to 60 and they're building every day. Wake Forest, where the trees used to be. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it's a pleasure to talk to you. Suzanne Lucy, the bookstore again is page 158 books. And you can imagine page 158 is whatever you want to imagine it, apparently, according to Suzanne. It makes me want to go into my collection and check page 158 on all the books. And congratulations and good luck with the new space. And I love your podcast. Thank you for having me on. And you're doing such good work. I hope to see you at one of our conventions because I think you promote books so well. Page 158 books. You can find it on Renaissance Place, 415 Brook Street, I understand, is the address in Wake Forest. Thanks very much, Suzanne. Thank you. Have a great day. So our thanks to Suzanne Lucy of page 158, for whatever reason it's named that, in Wake Forest, North Carolina. So we want to remind you that Kate and I don't do this all by ourselves. There are other people who help us with this podcast, bless their hearts. And after that, a final thought from William Kent Kruger. The Bookcase is a production of ABC Audio in partnership with Good Morning America. It is produced by David Canada in conjunction with Surecam Productions. Brenda Salinas-Baker is our supervising producer and Laura Mayer and Simone Swink are our executive producers. We give special thanks to Taylor Rhodes, Amanda McMaster and Sarah Russell of Good Morning America and Josh Cohen, Nania McLean and Cameron Chertavian at ABC Audio. There is nothing more important than reading a good book. There is nothing more important than buying that good book. 
at an independent bookstore. As in previous campaigns, it's the economy, stupid. We'll be looking at that this morning. First, though, it's the news, stupid. It is the economy, stupid. It's not the economy, stupid. It's national security, stupid. It's the hair, stupid. In 1992, one of the best-known pieces of presidential campaign wisdom was born. It's the economy, stupid. But was it actually the economy that won Bill Clinton that election? In a new series from the 538 Politics podcast, we're taking a look back at conventional wisdom from past elections with a critical lens. Where did that wisdom come from, and does it hold up today? Find the Campaign Throwback series in the 538 Politics feed wherever you get your podcasts.